This CBF podcast conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theology education. Study online or on campus and learn from Fuller seasoned scholar practitioners and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next steps in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are excited to launch this new podcast listener support project. We hope you'll visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for finding out ways of how you can support the podcast, but get stuff in return, like books from our guests here on the podcast, like sending in questions for upcoming guests, like joining me on an actual interview with one of our guests. And of course, the VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly by joining me with whoever we bring in for the podcast stage. And now, on to our conversation. This week's CBF Podcast Conversation is brought to you by CBF Advocacy. CBF Advocacy is excited to announce two Advocacy in Action opportunities in 2020. Advocacy in Action will be returning to Washington, D.C. on March 9th through the 12th, 2020, after a wonderful event in New York City. CBF's Advocacy's annual event will include popular staples such as participation meetings with congressional offices and opportunities to hear about advocacy efforts with CBF partners in Washington. In 2020, Advocacy in Action will include more experiential opportunities, including a special tour at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Registration for this event will be capped at 60 and opens September the 30th, 2019. Visit cbf.net backslash advocacy in action for more information about housing options, registration, and event details. For the first time ever, CBF's Advocacy is happy to announce a regional Advocacy in Action event in conjunction with CBF Heartland. Advocacy in Action Heartland will be February the 8th through the 10th, 2020 in Jefferson City, Missouri, co-hosted by CBF Heartland, First Baptist Jefferson City, CBF, and Word and Way. 
with a focus on equipping individuals to advocate for their state and local governments and finding alternatives to payday loans, Advocacy and Action Heartland promises to be an event you won't want to miss. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Leighton E. Williams. Leighton is a poet and a writer focusing on the intersection of faith and justice and politics and culture, the emphasis on sexuality and gender. She has written for Sojourners and the Religion Dispatches. She has a new book out, Holy Disunity. Leighton, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So, um, you know, for those that aren't familiar with your story, tell us a little bit more about you. Yeah, so, um, so as you said, I'm a writer and a poet, and I'm also um, an ordained pastor in the Presbyterian Church USA, um, which, you know, if you're trying to tell Presbyterian churches apart, we're the ones who ordain both women and LGBTQ people, um, which is good news for me because I am both of those things. Um, so yeah, I, I sort of, in listing out my identity, say that I am a um, outspokenly liberal bisexual uh, female Presbyterian pastor from a conservative Southern family that I deeply love. Um, and so I, I grew up in Atlanta, in suburban Atlanta, in, as I said, a pretty conservative uh, blended family. I'm the youngest of four, but that includes uh, two stepsisters. And um, my family growing up was pretty traditional, pretty disciplinarian, uh, raised in the PCUSA, but um, we were really involved in a church that was um, overwhelmingly white, large, fairly affluent uh, suburban North Atlanta congregation that was really only uh, diverse in one way, um, at least as far as I could tell as a kid, which um, was ideologically. And uh, there was quite a spread within, within that framework uh, amongst the thousand or so people that were a part of the congregation. And the way that that church dealt with that diversity of thought was um, really by not ever talking too much about anything that could be remotely construed as controversial. Um, and so um, I grew up very much in that environment of like polite conversation, both in church and beyond, um, and what, what is and isn't appropriate to talk about um, and the right way to disagree, um, or if you're allowed to disagree at all. Um, but I also, um, so I had this sort of narrow-ish experience uh, in that regard in my upbringing, um, given how all of the ways my church community and family were themselves not diverse. But I also went to public school in Atlanta, um, which was um, actually pretty solidly racially diverse, even though my immediate community was not as much. Um, and then I did also, the part of Atlanta I grew up in was heavily Jewish, so most of my friends outside of church were Jewish. Um, which just meant that I grew up going to Shabbat services on Friday night and reckoning with, to some degree, um, the realities of racism that existed um, in my city and in our education system. Um, so I did have some, some exposure that there uh, were experiences beyond my own and, uh, and a world beyond my own sort of enclave. Um, and I, you know, I said I grew up in a conservative family. I was honestly sort of born a bleeding heart. <laughs> I think, um, I think my mom kind of kept waiting for me to change and uh, get my head on straight, but I was always just uh, really um, overly concerned with other people's well-being and, and how I could help, if at all, and care for them and, you know, ease people's pain. Um, and so you might think, uh, given my deep involvement in church um, and that inclination, that uh, ministry was a no-brainer. 
but I actually initially thought I was going to be a screenwriter. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, I'd grown up wanting to be a writer, um, and in college that took the form of an interest in filmmaking and then and acting and then ultimately screenwriting. Um, and so I moved from, I went to Georgia for undergrad, so I moved from Athens, Georgia to Austin, Texas as kind of like a, a way stop on my way to what I, what I hoped would be a life uh, in the film industry in LA. Uh, Austin has a fairly robust film team, um, but I actually went out there to do a couple of years of AmeriCorps full-time volunteering. I worked in nonprofit education. Um, and so a funny thing happened, which is that I kept saying I was um, bound for film school and a screenwriting life, but everything I did with my time continued to be um, service-oriented. And so um, eventually, a few years into that, I realized that I was really operating from a space of viewing my work in education as a ministry. Um, and once I recognized that, it seemed obvious that I should uh, explore that in a in an educational seminary context. Uh, so I attended seminary uh, in Austin, and promptly about two weeks into my first semester, I uh, came out as bisexual, fell in love with a classmate, um, and uh, I would say that wasn't necessarily a surprise to me, but it was definitely a surprise to some other people in my life. Um, and it uh, that experience of coming out really honestly uh, activated me politically, um, that for, for, you know, an audience that's not necessarily familiar with, uh, Presbyterian politics, uh, the year I started seminary in 2011, about two months before I started school, um, was when the denomination finally and officially approved the ordination of LGBTQ people. Um, so I was coming out in the immediate aftermath of that. And then, um, the summer after I graduated, was when the denomination voted to expand its definition of marriage to be inclusive of same-sex couples. So my three years of um, seminary training happened, were sort of bookended by those two major um, shifts in the denomination and the controversies surrounding, surrounding them. So a lot of my seminary experience was um, organizing around um, marriage equality and having lots of very fraught conversations about uh, conservatives who are threatening to leave and um, queer people and their allies who were arguing heartily for full inclusion um, and no less. And then a lot of people in the middle who um, were were fond of saying that for them, it was about loving people on both sides and couldn't we all just stay at the table. Um, and I found myself often um, at odds with some of those moderate folks, mostly because I understood that um, for me, it was also about loving people on the far other side. Um, and I, I um, nevertheless found my way to a space of not being able to compromise on my convictions. And so um, I just developed a, a mentality and an approach to ministry um, that was really rooted in this idea that I just was not going to choose between my relationships or my convictions. And I wasn't willing to compromise on either one, um, which has meant pretty much ever since uh, persisting in this state of unresolved tension um, in my relationships with some of my family and um, my, my peers who are more ideologically aligned with me, um, but, but aren't still in relationship with people who feel very differently. Um, 
so yeah, that I kind of came, that's sort of the framework my ministry has operated out of for the last five years, um, which has included two years as a pastoral resident, um, a position I was ordained to uh, on a massive staff at a large church in downtown Chicago. I was one of eight clergy. Uh, it's called Fourth Presbyterian. It's right on the Magnificent Mile, the main downtown thoroughfare in Chicago. And it is a very historic, very wealthy congregation that is sort of known for its commitment to social justice. Um, so I worked there for two years and then left um, to move to D.C. with the intention of growing my writing, something I had been doing all along but had taken a particular sort of advocacy bent um, and also in search of work at the intersection of faith and advocacy. Um, and then it, it actually turned out that when I got to um, DC, I ended up getting a job with Sojourners, which was a publication um, I'd already written for before, a, a publication that has grown out of an evangelical history, but um, tends toward the progressive advocacy side, um, particularly in regards to um, anti-racism work and immigration and climate care and poverty. Um, and peace and nonviolence work um, and women and girls. Those are kind of their major campaigns. Uh, so I worked on their digital team for uh, about two and a half years, um, a very different kind of ministry. I was not uh, actively in the church, although I was occasionally preaching at various places. Um, and then I moved um, about a year ago. I made the choice to move home to Charleston, South Carolina. So I know I said that I grew up in Atlanta, but in the intervening years, essentially everyone in my family migrated uh, east to Charleston. My siblings all went to uh, college in Charleston and had the good sense not to leave. Um, my parents eventually moved over to the South Carolina coast as well. Um, and so in the wake of um, the 2016 election, which was honestly still at the beginning of my time at Sojourners, but um, because my work as their audience engagement editor really exposed me to the sort of polarized conversations that were happening in the digital space, which is just a more extreme version of what's happening everywhere else, um, I started to really grow concerns that if I continued to stay um, in spaces that were just with folks who shared my particular views, um, this chasm was going to grow in this country, which I think is accurate. Um, and that the people I love most in the world, my family, were going to be on the opposite side of that chasm for me. Um, and so I started to feel really drawn to move home and, and um, really invest in those relationships and also seek, seek out ways to do ministry sort of in that complicated, messy reality, particularly as it shows up in the Southeast. Um, and so, yeah, I moved home about, about a year ago. And um, eventually I was working remotely for Sojourners for a while and eventually left. And I'm now um, doing part-time church ministry. Um, here in town and doing part-time uh, communications work for a national organization and writing. That's kind of, um, that, that triumvirate is kind of where my ministry work is manifesting these days. Well, let's go back to, you know, you talked about earlier, um, and, and I would say so many of our audience can resonate with this, that, you know, we kind of grew up in the tradition that we grew up in, but then we come out of that, we have been formed um, but mm -hmm. then we go through a period of deconstruction and reconstruction, and it's not in the same tradition that we grew up in. So, you know, y yes, for you, you stayed Presbyterian, but I would definitely think that your theology is much different now than it was in the church you grew up in, based on what you described earlier. So maybe walk us through kind of that, that part of your spiritual journey and, and vocational journey. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, for starters, I... Um, 
around the time that I was finishing high school was the first of a series of sort of upheavals within my home congregation. In some ways, like very typical church conflicts. I think the first one was a building project that um, while we were in debt, that like people that I loved were deeply divided about. And then there was, you know, a person on staff getting fired and somebody else resigning all over the course of several years. Um, and it really showed, I think before that, I had pretty rose-colored glasses about um, my church and the institutional church in general. Um, and so that set me up just in time to go off to college and decide that I didn't believe in organized religion anymore. Um, and so for the, the first year and a half or so of undergrad, um, I didn't so much explore other theologies as sort of leave it all behind for a while um, and eventually got to a space. I don't know. I just, I was not doing super well. And I had said something about it to my mom and my mom said, have you considered the possibility that that part of why you're struggling so much is because you're not connected to a faith community for the first time in your life? And of course I said, no, mom, that's dumb. That's not what it is. Stop forcing your ideologies on me. Um, and then about six months later, I finally decided to um, explore the possibility that she might know what she was talking about. Um, and so at that point, I got I got very involved very quickly with the Presbyterian Student Center at the University of Georgia, which is a really small, really wonderful campus ministry um, that was itself already significantly more um, liberal than the space I'd grown up in. Um, it shared a building with the Metropolitan Community Church, um, which is you know, born out of LGBTQ people's experience. Um, and so in some ways, you know, that was the first context I served as a, a student minister. And so it was the first um, context in which I was really a ministry leader. But even that, as is so often the case in institutions, um, my time in undergrad ended with some major conflict in that space. And so I moved out to Texas, again, really disillusioned um, and really in a space of of questioning what I believed entirely. And um, yeah, I remember in my early 20s, there were these, not to get too raw, but there were definitely these days where I would just like cry in the shower because for some reason I was afraid that even though I lived alone, somebody would hear me and I was crying about how I wasn't sure if I believed in anything at all. And I like, that, that was such an unthinkable thing for me having grown up from day one in the church, right? Um, but in the end, I think was actually really important, as you were saying, um, in terms of giving me space um, to deconstruct and question and get angry and confront my fears um, and, and the role those things were playing in how I understood faith. Um, and actually, when I, when I was in discernment about seminary, um, I met monthly with uh, the pastor of a, a church I was attending out in Austin. I actually had started my ordination process under the care of the church I'd grown up in, um, but was attending a church in Austin that was open and affirming. Um, and I actually left my home church and went under their care um, when I came out. Um, but anyway, I met with that pastor once a month. And I remember in the lead up to seminary, I confessed that I didn't think I could go to seminary because some days I woke up and I wasn't sure if God really existed at all. And um, my pastor at the time, Joseph said, um, you know, some days I wake up and I'm not sure either. And then I have to get up in the pulpit. Um, and he said, you know, the, the, the days when we lean on our community and we lean on and we lean on God. And, you know, I think you'll find there are a lot of pastors who uh, have confronted those spaces of doubt and you shouldn't be afraid. Um, and so that kind of set me up for a seminary experience that really, I think, 
this happens for a lot of people, um, was really designed to tear down all of my assumptions about um, what it means to be Christian, what I believed about God and the church. Um, and then in that community, which just so happened to be filled, yes, with a lot of progressively minded folks, but also a bizarre number of us who showed up from conservative backgrounds and identified as straight. And then within our first year or two of seminary came out as some something within the um, LGBTQ realm. Um, and so, you know, I was reconstructing my faith in that very clear space alongside other people that had done some really hard and similar work deconstructing um, what they'd been taught and, and seeking all of us together to find um, a Christianity, Christianity that there was space for us and our stories in. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. You've got a new book out that kind of helps people in many regards kind of uh, bridge that gap in conversations. The The book is Holy Disunity, How What Separates Us Can Save Us. And the book is a theological invitation to engage in conversations and relationships with those uh, who we disagree. And you wrote, uh, when we reject and judge and oppress and mistreat others on the basis of inerrant differences, when we allow those differences to justify our hating others and treating them as less than beloved by God than us, we are not just rejecting them. We are rejecting the God image in them. Take us a little deeper into this and also kind of um, what led you to write this book. Yeah. Um, so I think that I, one of the challenges in talking about this book is that um, I think it really walks a, a, a tightrope of nuance that we are not accustomed to um, recognizing in conversations about uh, polarization and unity or disunity, um, which is that I'm quick to um, clarify that I am not saying we have to stay unified or even um, in community necessarily when I'm saying we have a responsibility to A, maintain an understanding that anybody we're engaged with is uh, just as beloved by God as we are, no matter what they say or do. Um, and B, that we ha we do have a call to remain in relationship with others, and what that relationship looks like um, may not may not be what we think of when we think of unity or even community. Um, but I I um, I think on a base level, uh, while I think a lot of things a lot of terrible things can happen when we rush towards this idea that unity is something we can, we can create, um, I think the the sort of opposite end problem that happens is once we've acknowledged, okay, there's no way that we're going to be united. There's no way that we're going to all be able to come to the table about this. 
that then in, in the space immediately after that, we sort of um, give up any Christian responsibility we have to other people that we consider to be on the other side of an issue from us or, or you know, our opposition. And, you know, I, I'm not quite sure what to say to people who uh, don't identify as Christian, but I do feel quite strongly that, like, if you do claim Christian faith, sort of the baseline expectation is that you honor the God image in other people, all other people, and that that should transform how we interact with each other. It doesn't mean that um, we're always polite. It doesn't mean we're not allowed to get angry or that we have to hold back what we really think or feel in the name of, you know, protecting the peace or whatever, far from it. Um, I think that if we really respond to our call to see the God image in others and to be in relationship with others, um, real relationship allows space for righteous anger and for honest, passionate argument and um, powerful vulnerability. And I think, I think that is the responsibility that we can't um, abdicate in, in our recognition that unity may not be either possible or even a good thing in our current reality. So much of your story is is wrapped in this book, in particular, um, when it came to what you've called the gift of separation. You wrote, mm-hmm. spaces for separation can be a fertile soil where new and previous impossible things can grow. I wonder if you'll take us deeper there. Yeah, um, I think in my book, I, I tell two stories, um, sort of intertwined stories from my own life, um, where I really saw that come to fruition. and. Um, One of those is about my relationship with my childhood church, which I've already alluded to a little bit. Um, And the other one is my relationship with my mother. And so with my childhood church, um, like I said, growing up, it's not that they were overtly non-affirming. On the contrary, I can't remember a single time that anything was explicitly said about it at church, about being gay or bi or um, queer. But, But somehow I certainly got the impression that that it would be a bad thing for me to come out. Um, and so when the time came uh, and I started seminary and I came out shortly thereafter and I was um, under care of the congregation, I had a long, hard conversation with my youth pastor with whom I was still and still am very close. Um, and we sort of mutually agreed at that point, I was not in a space to come out to my family yet. And they were still very actively involved in the church. And I knew that if I came out to my home congregation and um, and tried to stay in the ordination process, that um, one way or another, it was almost certainly going to explode that community in some pretty profound and irreversible ways. Um, and, and moreover, I was a thousand miles away, but my parents were still there and clueless. Um, and so this thought of leaving these people that I love to kind of deal with this bomb that I was going to place in their midst. Um, daunted me enough that I felt like it was the wrong choice to stay in that community. And so, as I said, before I left um, and became a part of the church, I'd already been attending in Austin where that was a a settled issue more or less. Um, And over the years, I, (laughs) I often wondered if I had shortchanged my home community by not even giving them the chance to decide for themselves. um, Or if maybe I was precisely the person that, um, that could have been the, the spark for that conversation. Um, but I also knew that the senior pastor that was there when I was in seminary, who was not 
the person I grew up with, um, was much more conservative. And uh, so he and I, we never really had that conversation. We weren't close, but I would go back often and visit my parents um, and, and see him at church. And he was always very warm and kind to me. I never got the slightest impression that he took issue. In fact, I wasn't always <laughs> sure that he knew that I had come out. Um, and then, uh, the, the spring before my graduation from seminary, after these several years of a very good ongoing relationship with my childhood church, um, I decided to ask her what had honestly become sort of a, um, expected tradition. There were a number of us that grew up and became ordained pastors and, um, it had become typical for those in seminary or early in their ministry to come home during the summer, um, to that church and preach. And so I emailed um, both my former youth pastor and the then senior pastor um, to ask if I could do that. And um, I was honestly not thinking about the fact that uh, between the day I sent that email and the day I had asked to come preach, the denomination would be voting on marriage equality because that, that wasn't my frame of mind at all. I was, I was hoping to come back as a as sort of a thank you for, you know, continuing to be my community and continuing to shape me in faith. Um, and I didn't hear back for a long time. And then I did hear back um, that the senior pastor was going to say no, wasn't going to allow me to preach and was going to call me to explain why. And uh, not to belabor the point, but it was it was pretty much what you might expect. I mean, he was worried about it being a political flashpoint, especially in that season. Um, I learned that if the denomination did indeed vote in favor of marriage equality, uh, he would likely leave the denomination, um, which he in fact did. Um, and so, but for me, that was the first time. That was honestly, even though I had left years earlier, that was what felt like the real separation, the real break, because that was the first time that it was um, confirmed for me that my sexual identity really was a barrier to my inclusion in that community and that it had changed my relationship with them profoundly. Um, but in the way of things, you know, I mean, that was a very painful, but maybe in some ways necessary parting. It was, it was a moment of me realizing that this was not a part of myself that I could take back or was willing to take back. And that this, this identity as a bisexual woman was a crucial part of the ministry to which I feel called. Um, and so that was a hard season, definitely, of, of separation, unlike I had experienced with that congregation before. Um, but in the end, you know, as I mentioned, that pastor left. And about a year and a half later, I was invited back to that church um, to preach for their, the sermon for their, the end of their stewardship season, the end of their, um, essentially their pledge drive. Um, and I, I preached about that church and how it had formed me. And I preached about how being people of faith calls us to move together in relationship into futures we can't predict um, and trust in the Holy Spirit. Um, and I called that sermon homecoming. And it was an incredible experience. And I was received incredibly warmly. And um, my mother, who at that point was had felt pretty distant from the PCUSA herself uh, because of her own disagreement with um, not just LGBTQ issues, but um, some other things that she felt were uh, the church meddling in politics is kind of how she phrased it. Nevertheless, she sat front and center um, in in that service to cheer me on. And, and in fact, I'm returning to that church 
uh, in, in about a week and a half, they're hosting my book launch. Um, and I am preaching once again and uh, leading a training for their church leaders. So that was definitely a story of um, really, really painful separation that led to even more painful separations. Um, but that ultimately, you know, we grew to a space of reunion that um, is more authentic and and more joyful and mutually respectful than um, than it had ever been before. And then and then you know on the flip side, I talk in that chapter about how you know that's one story of separation where you walk separate paths for a while and then you eventually sort of <laughs> reunite. But with my mom, um, you know, she we are a, an example of. Uh, relationship and paradox. Uh, we both believe that sometimes being a person of faith and and loving somebody else means holding two seemingly paradoxical truths in your hands at the same time. And um, you know, she ever since those denominational votes um, had not felt home in the denomination. And several years ago, she stopped attending that church. And um, it, it, part of that was that they moved out of town. But they now attend a really conservative Episcopal church um, down in Boston, South Carolina. Um, and the thing is, I mean, you know, I've been to that church and it's gorgeous and they love it. It's so clear that they're very happy there in a way they haven't been in church in a long time. Um, and it's also clear that that church could never be a home for me. Um, and that, that separation will probably, that, I mean, that separation between us, our capacity to, our incapacity to be at home in the same church or denomination um, might very well last the rest of our lives. But one thing I've found is that having those separate spaces um, has given my mom and I the capacity to then come back to one another and have some really honest, hard, beautiful human conversations about faith and about the things we disagree about. Um, but I don't think we would have been able to do if we had stayed in these really contested, uh, painful um, denominational spaces together. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit more about those that are different from us. I'm, I'm totally on board with your argument that we tend to judge and reject and mistreat those who have different viewpoints than us. And it's hard not to at times because oftentimes we are judged and rejected and mistreated by those who have opposing views. And one of the challenges I think we face in the church today, and it's not a, a new problem, is that um, our opposing perspective holders tend to use different vocabulary and kind of mm -hmm. have different connotations between the issues. So like somebody might argue, they're saying from a biblical view and it's like, yeah, yeah, I'm talking about the Bible too. I just, <laughs> I see, I see this biblical passage a little differently. I, I had a former church member in one of my former contexts come up to me after preaching a sermon from Luke 4, you know, where Jesus proclaims good news to the poor, recovery sight for the blind, setting the captive free releasing the imprisoned and the former church member said to me you know i really would appreciate it if you didn't preach political messages in church and it was like no i was just preaching the words of jesus so but many of us are mm -hmm. are leading congregations with people who have opposing views than us so how have you effectively ministered to people that are in a different theological place than you um that's a great question and i I want to say first that um, I think you're so right that one of the one of the biggest challenges we're facing um, in this space of disunity today is is um, you know we hear the the story of the Tower of Babel 
in the Bible, and it's about people who once shared the same language suddenly having, you know, a multitude of languages and not being able to understand one another. And of course, that gets inverted at Pentecost. But um, but I have grown to a place of saying that I think our modern Tower of Babel is that we're using all the same words, but not meaning the same things when we say them. Um, and so we've, we were still without the capacity to understand one another and communicate. Um, and and uh, you can see that, yes, like you said, with what it means to be um, faithful to the Bible or what we even mean by unity or what we mean by argument, um, all of those things. I, and so I think on a, on a broad spectrum level, this work, this really hard and holy work of living in the midst uh, faithfully in the midst of disunity requires an immense amount of trust and humility um, and ongoing conversation of, of deconstructing what those differences in meaning are. Um, but on, in a very tangible way, I'll tell you that I work now at a church um, on Sullivan's Island, uh, which is off of uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Um, it's much like the congregation I grew up in. It's um, definitely on the affluent side, predominantly white. Um, I imagine it leans a little to the right, um, but they hired me <laughs> to do this um, very particular work uh, that we call New Dawn Ministries, which is leading uh, a more contemporary service um, and some young adult outreach. But the real crux of the work is trying to create a conversational space for faith um, where we can show up authentically in the midst of our different perspectives and wrestle together about the hard questions of faith. and. Um, just very practically speaking, a few of the things that um, we've developed to do that is um, we have a talk back session in response to the sermon every week. And so um, I preach topically, generally speaking, on, on hard topics. It's a fairly new uh, role for me. And so I will say we haven't like, we did recently talk about climate change in the talk back session, but generally speaking, we haven't, I haven't preached a sermon that is like about gun control or about this, you know, very partisan political platform or what have you. Um, but we do talk about some very hard uh, faith things. And so I preach in a way that's very like born out of my own experiences and the experiences of other people I know. Um, and then folks in the congregation are allowed to submit anonymously via text message or they can raise their hands. Um, and we have a moderator comes up and we, I answer questions in real time and people are allowed to offer comments and we just sort of try to dig a little deeper. And I think what helps in that space is it doesn't feel like I'm standing up to tell you what you should believe, but I am um, opening a doorway to a conversation that I am just as eager to have you participate in. Um, and so we're also trying to do that even more so in um, some of our fellowship events. So we've recently started the pub theology night. Um, so once a month we get together and, you know, have drinks or food and sit around and there's a topic. And uh, my goal for that space is to eventually have that be the first space where I introduce really um, challenging uh, topics of disagreement so that it starts from a place of, um, okay, we're all around the table together, um, sort of at an equal level, um, you know, having having this conversation, we have some previously established trust and understanding of the dynamics. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think as much as possible, creating space for dialogue rather than um, sort of hierarchical uh, teaching or 
or um, dictation of what of what it means to be Christian is is helpful. Um, and showing and as a faith leader, showing up to those spaces with um, humility and recognition that you you can also learn from your people um, has been really helpful for me. I think. Um, yeah, I mean, we're still early days, but I'm really, it's been a great few months, um, and I'm really hopeful about what we'll be able to do going forward. How do you see this book being a resource for local churches? Um, I hope that it sort of designs, um, there are study questions for each chapter, um, which I had the publisher, uh, we negotiated, they wanted the study questions, and I said, that's great, but I want them at the end of the book, because if an individual is reading it, I don't want them to think that they're reading like a textbook, but it is very intentionally designed um, to function as a book study for a church or a Sunday school curriculum or a sermon series um, or a dinner group sort of launch point. Um, and so I, I tried to both write, I mean, you mentioned I, I weave a lot of my own narrative into the book, um, which is an intentional choice to be, um, open and vulnerable about how I've arrived at my own positions in hopes of encouraging that same level of openness and vulnerability from from readers. And then I tried to write questions um, also in ways that that allow space for people to share from from their experiences and then how those experiences have led them to their particular vantage points. Um, because one thing I found is, you know, I said earlier, my mom and I share this conviction about the, the importance of tension and paradox in both relationship and in faith. And we've come to that conclusion from very different experiences, right? And so I think that um, it, is, it is helpful for people to realize that, like, you know, you don't have to be bisexual. You don't even have to understand what it means to be bisexual to learn something from me and vice versa. Um, and so I tried, yeah, I tried to write the book um, and, and structure the study questions in a way um, that could really be, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it's not intended to be a textbook. It's not intended to be super heady or academic, um, but instead to be really conversational and sort of personal and um, inviting of, of open-ended conversation. Um, so I'm hoping that churches use it in that way and whatever sort of framework or structure works for their individual congregations or, or, you know, larger governing bodies. Now you're working um, on a ministry kind of based around kind of the concepts of the book. Do you want to take us a, a little deeper into that? Yeah. So, um, so that is the, the, well, the primary component of that is um, the ministry job I just mentioned um, at this church on Sullivan's Island. And I actually did not, it's interesting. Um, I mean, I wrote this book, let's see, I turned in the draft in December. Um, I, a friend of mine had this position before I did, and he, he just acquired it around the same time I turned in um, my book draft. And we like went out for drinks and he was telling me about it. And at that time, um, I had no idea. I was still working at Sojourners. I had no idea that it would eventually um, be passed on to me. Um, and so he is really who helped this congregation imagine um, what they wanted the focus of this ministry initiative to be and how they wanted it to be structured. Um, and then it just so happened. I mean, things unfolded in such a way that he left to, to plan a church of his own when the opportunity arose. And I stepped into that role and it just turned out, I mean, I remember being 
in conversation with the hiring team and it was, it was almost eerie because the work that, um, or the kind of community they were really seeking to build and the space they were seeking to build was so in line with what I'd just written about and was, and was trying to do, you know, in a larger sense. And so um, I will say that one thing that is a crucial component of this work and is why I think it works is um, this, you know, this is a church that traditionally has much like the church I grew up in um, sort of made a way to stay together by not really diving into anything political, even if it's just Jesus talking. Um, but they also recognize um, that what they have benefited from in having a church community, they want other people to also be able to benefit from that. And they recognize that like the, the way business as usual for them may not actually achieve that for other people and that they need to be open to new ways of showing up in community together and new ways of having conversation, even if that means like really having some open, hard disagreements. Um, and so I honestly, I really got quite lucky to show up to some pretty fertile soil um, in that regard. And um, yeah, we're hoping to continue expanding uh, spaces. Like I mentioned pub theology, but we're hoping to create other spaces for conversation, for fellowship, for service that, that all continue to push forward this idea of um, you, you don't have to understand one another to be in relationship with one another and, and, you know, mutually affirm one another's humanity and God's belovedness and learn from each other, um, even in the midst of some pretty significant differences. Um, so, yeah, that's, that is the work I'm doing for the foreseeable future. Well, if you want to stay connected uh, with Leighton, you can visit LeightonEWilliams.com can follow her on social media. Of course, go out and purchase Holy Disunity wherever books are sold. Leighton, thank you for inviting us to the table of conflict, knowing that we can more effectively love our enemies by actually interacting with them. Thank you for having me. It's been uh, great to talk to you today. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return.